Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. I decided that um, I would put out a a additional episode focused on the rather depressing report which has hit the headlines today. Uh, everybody starts the week, don't they? Thinking, okay, here we go, another week. What's uh, what's in store for me personally, professionally, uh, and all of this? And it was pretty depressing to switch on my phone this morning and lie in bed drinking my cup of tea reading about the revelations of the the findings i think it's the interim findings actually of the report by baroness louise casey to the met commissioner sir mark riley just to kind of explain for those who don't know um that was a report which was commissioned around the time or just after the Sarah Everard murder and the Wayne Cousins debacle and she was invited to come in and look at standards of behaviour and conduct within the organisation. I'm a bit of a fan of a couple of well-known political podcasts and they do a uh, what they describe as an emergency podcast which always makes me smile uh, I don't think there's such a thing as an emergency podcast, but I think the point is that if there's something really, really interesting going on in the political arena, they'll put something out uh, outside their normal tempo of um, episodes. So I thought I'd do something similar because I think uh, otherwise, by the time this goes out, the whole Baroness Casey report kind of gets forgotten about. And I also felt it was important to not just talk about this report and give you my thoughts on it, but also uh, that this comes hard on the heels of uh, an earlier uh, revelation by a ex-officer from the Diplomatic Protection Group uh, that there had been a WhatsApp group in existence uh, for a large number of Met officers over many years where the person who had created that, that group, a chap called Rob Lewis, I believe, who is now employed, or was employed, because I think he's now been suspended, uh, by the Home Office immigration team, which is obviously really, really worrying, given the content of all of those messages that were deeply, deeply unpleasant and racial in their tone and content. So there's clearly something 
gone really, really badly wrong here, hasn't there? And the purpose of, of this is just uh, to give you my thoughts about all of it and um, caveats it as usual with these are just my thoughts, my views based on uh, obviously many years experience of working within the organisation, uh, knowing many people who have um, been through misconduct uh, processes. Uh, I've known a lot of people or I had staff who were, you know, taken through those processes. Um, and uh, yeah, so I feel reasonably competent to comment, but uh, it's only my views. So if you want to read the report itself, um, if you go to the Met, Met Police website, it's all there. Uh, if you Google uh, Baroness Casey report, uh, Met Police, you'll find it. Um, but to save you the effort of doing that and uh, reading it, I shall give you the highlights or, uh, or more likely the uh, lowlights, unfortunately. Um, before I do, just something that probably I've been reflecting on today as I've been going about my daily business is, um, as you know, there's probably no no one or very few people more supportive uh, of policing in the UK. I'm a massive cheerleader for policing. Uh, it's really uh, deeply ingrained in my DNA after so many years, and uh, it's and I'm hugely hugely supportive of police officers. But I did have to sort of challenge myself, I think, today and say, you know, I asked myself the question, have I been too optimistic or have I been insufficiently sceptical about policing in everything that I've written and everything that I've said, um, not just in my you know, book and blogs and on this podcast, um, should I maybe have been a lot more challenging of policing? Have I been guilty of uh, only looking at the positive sides? Um, I mean, obviously, I've been very critical about lots of things around policing, but I've maybe tended to frame policing and police officers um, as somewhat um, victims of a horrible um mess uh, created by a combination of uh stupid clueless politicians um uh, excessive cuts to resources um meddling uh, and you know hostile journalists uh, and and a, a sort of a generation of of rather weak leaders in policing um but maybe i should have been a little bit more challenging of some of the cultures within policing and some of the because there clearly is isn't there looking at this report there clearly is a very deep-seated albeit a minority but it's clearly a significant minority isn't it of people who are in the organization who should not be there um, so i'm going to make a commitment to uh, try and be a bit more um, sceptical, I suppose, in future. But just turning to the report, um, Baroness Casey identified eight key issues. Um, I'm not going to go through uh, each of them in loads and loads of detail, 
but I think it's important to point out what those key issues are. So the first one is that the Met takes too long to resolve misconduct cases. Now, um, again, really important to point out, and I didn't understand, I didn't realise this uh, until I saw this report. Her report only deals with allegations um, made by members of the police, of the police organisation, or their families, and I must say that that very fact really quite shocked me in that um, the, the number of, of allegations uh, cases being looked at which are dealt with internal misconduct as opposed to complaints from members of the public is really, really high. And um, there's also something there for me about the fact that if you are dealing with an allegation of misconduct made by a colleague or a member of the family of a serving officer, then by definition, I would suggest that that should probably be given greater weight than an allegation made by a member of the public. And that doesn't mean to say that we should be, um, you know, we should be treating allegations from members of the public uh, in a sort of a um, dismissive way. But what I mean by that is that a member of the public, when they've been dealt with by the police, generally speaking, uh, can be often motivated out of, um, you know, wanting to sort of throw sand in the eyes of the police or to make spurious or malicious allegations. Um, we've all seen that. Anyone who's been in the police for, you know, two minutes has seen how uh, people who are basically criminals, um, and it's in their interests to to uh, confuse the matter by putting sort of malicious complaints into the system. Um, but but what really shocked me was the fact that this that isn't this this report isn't about that. This is about colleagues or family members making allegations against police officers. And I actually find that really in itself, I actually find that quite shocking um, that A, there should be so many of them and, and, and B, that the resolution of these is so unbelievably poor. So, so going back to the, the eight points, um, first one is that the Met takes too long to resolve these cases and on average it takes 400 days, which is just madness, isn't it? And 20% of those cases take more than two years to finalise. Um, second point is that officers and staff do not believe that action will be taken when concerns around conduct are raised. Uh, and that obviously uh, creates, puts barriers in the way right from the get-go. Uh, and, and line managers and supervisors are being described as warning staff against taking misconduct action because they've got so little faith in the process. Um, the third point is that uh, allegations involving sexual misconduct and other discriminatory behaviours are less likely than, than other types of misconduct to result in a case to answer decision. Which, uh, again, is quite shocking, isn't it, really? Because I would suggest that out of all of the things that you could complain about in relation to a police officer, sexual misconduct uh, or discriminatory behaviour should be, I would suggest, you know, together with 
dishonesty or theft or something should be right at the top of the queue to be looked at, shouldn't it? Um, uh, so I'll go through these points and then I'll come back and I'll sort of give you my thoughts. Right? Um, the fourth point is that the misconduct process does not find and discipline officers with, with repeated patterns of unacceptable behaviour. And it described how between 2013 and 2022, 20% 20 of officers and staff in the misconduct system have been involved in two or more cases. Um, I, I, maybe I'm a bit weird, but I, I, I never had one the whole time I was at. I got complaints, but from members of the public, generally criminals, but they never went anywhere because I hadn't done anything wrong. I certainly never got complained about by a colleague uh, that would have been deemed misconduct and, and and I don't think many of the people I ever worked with did either so so that that statistic for me is quite quite uh, shocking um, fifth point is that the Met does not fully support local professional standards units PSUs are referred to to deal with misconduct effectively so uh, just to explain what that means uh, there are nominated individuals or small teams on every command unit to deal with misconduct and, and very often they will be dealing with those things uh, in addition to their day job so they will be said right you will be uh, in charge of this particular team or this particular function but in addition to that you will also be looking at uh, complaints and then uh, the central directorate of professional standards dps uh, would, would probably pick up the the more complex investigations but Either way, both um, sort of functions, whether it's a local unit or whether it's a central unit, appear to be failing. Um, sixth point is that the Met is not clear about what constitutes gross misconduct and what will be done about it. Uh, and there's a sense that the threshold uh, for gross misconduct has been set too high. Uh, allowing people to um, escape with either, you know, verbal or written warnings when, when actually they should probably be getting sacked. Uh, seventh point is that there is racial disparity throughout the Met's misconduct system, and they find out that in 2021 to 22, black officers and staff were 81% 80, more likely than white officers to have misconduct allegations brought against them and Asian officers 55% more likely uh, and apparently that is a very long-standing issue uh, and the final point is that the regulation 13 notice is not being used fairly or, or effectively in relation to misconduct so what that is uh, is it's a regulation which allows for the removal of probationers um, so so my own view on that one is that uh, if you're going to spot someone who is clearly unsuitable for policing you're going to know that pretty early on um, and to be able to get rid of people before they are outside of their probation I would suggest is a very desirable thing to do because if you don't do that then you're going to then uh, find it incredibly difficult to get rid of them um, once they're outside their probation and apparently only 8% of cases in the last year resulted in dismissal. So, so 
the very fact that someone has been served with the Regulation 13 notice suggests, or doesn't suggest, shows that that person is clearly unsuitable to be a police officer for, for, for whatever reason. And, and yet, even having done that, 92% of people in that system are retained in the organisation. And I just think it would be worth um, just describing. They do a, a cut, there's a couple of case studies that they, they dive into just to sort of illustrate some of these points. So in one particular instance, it involves an officer with 11 misconduct cases that were raised. I'll read this out from the report. Case study one involves an officer with 11 misconduct cases raised against him for cases involving abuse, sexual harassment, assault, fraud, improper disclosure of information and distribution of an explicit image of himself. The officer received a formal sanction in relation to the first misconduct case, but was not dismissed. By the time this decision had been made, a further six misconduct cases had already been raised against him. After receiving this formal sanction, a further four misconduct cases were raised against him, and the officer then received a further formal sanction, but was not dismissed. The officer is serving, is still serving in the Metropolitan Police. You just think, what the fuck is going on here? Um, it goes on to give uh, a bit, a lot, uh, quite a lot more detail about those each individual case and what happened, and it's just a litany of it just. It's just horrific. And you just think someone is someone must be on drugs here to 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 think that that's acceptable. And the the next uh, misconduct uh, sort of dip sample just to illustrate the point is, and I'll read this out. Uh, dip sample case study two involves an officer who has had six misconduct cases raised against him for oppressive conduct and harassment, neglect of duty, leakage of information and discriminatory behaviour linked to race and faith. The majority of discrimination or harassment related to allegations were linked to the officer's use of social media, including a WhatsApp group. The officers received two final written warnings in 10 years, received a no case to answer decision for the three cases, and no case, and one case remains open. The officer is serving in the Metropolitan Police. I would say in brackets for now, close brackets, um, and uh, yeah, just in case. I mean, this is pretty breathtaking. This, so I'll give you another one. Come on, then, Are you ready for another one? Dip sample case study three involves an officer who's had seven misconduct cases raised against him for corrupt practice, traffic irregularity, failure to safeguard whilst on duty, domestic assault, sexual assault and domestic abuse and disrespectful attitudes and discreditable conduct. Okay, that's seven different issues. The officer has received management action three times, reflective practice once, and has received no case to answer decisions in the other three cases. The officer is still serving in the Metropolitan Police. So yeah, I mean, it's really, really breathtaking. Um, and uh, and I think that there's some serious questions that need to be answered about the 
leadership there of the professional standards um, units, uh, the decision making, and um, kind of more than anything really, there's a massive lack of joined up thinking around uh, around these individuals. Now I could be wrong here, but I'm sure that years and years ago, when I was relatively young in service, service officers were got rid of, uh, and they used to describe it being done on system. So in other words, each individual case may not reach the gross misconduct threshold, but numerous cases taken together would be sufficient to get rid of someone. Now, I'm not sure if, if that's my memory uh, being at fault or whether I've just got the wrong end of the stick, but I'm sure people used to get sacked from the police um, because they, their name would be continuously appearing in professional standards um, files. So that's the sort of headlines from the report. And um, it'd be really interesting to, to see the stats on external misconduct, uh, because as I say, that's only stuff that is colleague to colleague, which I just find absolutely shocking. So you've got, you've got a member of the police or a member of their family making a serious allegation against another police officer. So this is an allegation being made by someone who is, has been recruited, uh, presumably because they're of good character uh, and have integrity, and you're quite happy to have them standing up in the witness box at court, giving evidence under oath and expecting them to be believed. And yet when they make an allegation against one of their own, that seems to be just consistently being swept under the carpet, which I just find absolutely astonishing, really. Um, so what, I, what do I think what do I think is going on here? So I, I put a post on, on LinkedIn uh, this morning, um, as, I, as I do, and giving my sort of initial kind of back of the fag packet thoughts on this. So the, the truth is, I suppose, that uh, a member of the public reading that report, reading the headlines of the report, will be shocked, and quite rightly so. Um, but they haven't worked in the organisation and they're not in a position to try and understand what you think has been going on here. Um, and I think, I think there's two things, really. Um, there's, there's, there's unacceptable behaviour. OK, so let's, there's, there's, let's call it a uh, two, two issues that sit running along in parallel with one another okay so the first thing is lots and lots of really really bad behavior and then running along in parallel with that is what has been going on inside and outside the police organization over the last i don't know maybe let's call it 15 um, you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, and for, for me, whilst I know I keep harking back to this and people will probably roll their eyes when I say this because they'll say, oh, here he goes, you know, back to Theresa May. But for me, the, the elephant in the room with a lot of this stuff 
is the fact that back in 2010, the whole of the police organisation nationally lost a huge amount of the resources, something like 35%, as well as all of those police officers, you know, 20 odd thousand officers and, and something like 25,000 members of police staff who did essential things behind the scenes. And, and suddenly the job of policing became really, really, really difficult. Um, and one of the things that was cut, uh, or some of the things that were cut, were uh, training schools, residential training schools. And, and I know I've said this before, and people will say, oh, but, you know, they weren't all perfect. No, I know they weren't perfect. But what they did do was they allowed the training staff to take a really, really good look at people. And for many weeks, well before they ever went out on the street. And they were able to spot the people who just were fundamentally unsuitable for the organisation. And moving to this kind of model of training, um, you know, distance learning, online stuff, university, all of that stuff is just no substitute. I, in my view, it's no substitute for disciplined training schools that where individuals who are not suitable would be would be either outed by their colleagues. Very often, it was it was their colleagues in class going to their instructors and saying, "This bloke's a fucking maniac. You, you know, we need to get rid of him," um, because. They might not be displaying that that crazy behaviour in front of training staff unless they're incredibly stupid, but they certainly would have been doing it outside class. And very often, a class would go en masse to a instructor, a police teacher, trainer, and say, "This person is just a fucking idiot, and, we, and you need to get him out." And and very often that that would happen. So so that was that was something there about weeding those people out as well as having a very disciplined environment that engendered a strong sense of um, teamwork and uh, an ethos that where these types of behaviours I don't think were would have been able to flourish. Um, so the next thing that sort of jumped out to me was that because resources were cut back so hard and were stretched to breaking point, I heard many, many anecdotal accounts of people being allowed to keep their jobs who would otherwise have been sacked simply because the frontline resources were so stretched that they were being given the benefit of the doubt. Um, but of course, uh, that is a very, very short-sighted um, approach to take. And, uh, and ultimately, those people will uh, infect the organisation uh, in a way that getting them out early. Um, you know, I understand that it takes a long time to train someone and, you know, the, the recruitment processes are expensive and all of that. I, I know all of that. But the, these people are like a cancer within the organisation and you need to get them out. Well, ideally, the vetting processes need to be sufficiently robust before they even arrive at a training school. But if they are at a training school, then you need to get them out as quickly as possible. Um, the other kind of massive issue for me was uh, all of this demonstrates a total absence of robust first-line supervision. So 
sergeants and inspectors. Let's say sergeant. Let's talk about sergeants, okay? Um, back in the day, and again, I can almost see and feel people rolling their eyes. Oh, here he goes. But it's true. Back in the day, sergeants had sufficient time to supervise their staff to actually go out on patrol with them, to actually go out to incidents and actually be there on the ground helping deal with uh, difficult or slightly um, complex issues. By doing that, they were able to have a really good look at their staff and see them acting often in conflict situations or under pressure. They were able to understand who, who are the people, who's the person, who are the people on the team who I can really trust to go out there and, and make those difficult sort of nuanced decisions uh, in a way that I don't have to worry about. So, on, you know, I think back to when I was a sergeant, um, there would be certain individuals on a team who either through a combination of maybe just a lack of experience or maybe a tendency to let their mouth run off with them, you would, you would keep them on a very short leash and if they started acting in a way that you were unhappy about, uh, you could um, give them a good old-fashioned bollocking back at the police station. Um, I don't think sergeants have got the, um, the bandwidth now to actually spend time with their troops. Um, the, the anecdotal stuff I'm hearing at the moment is that very often they're, they're sort of located at a police station many miles away from where frontline policing is taking place and they're just overwhelmed with uh, bureaucracy and um, sat in front of a computer terminal in an office somewhere just going through reams and reams of um, you know uh, admin and that is just no good to man or beast I'm afraid. Um, as for inspectors I think a good inspector is someone who has got a good team of sergeants um, under them who they can trust um, to uh, keep things uh, nice and tidy uh, on the front line. Uh, who 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 are who've got a really good understanding of their of their you know potential problem children, um, and who will back up the sergeants if the sergeants decide to um, give someone that good old bollocking. Um, but they're also again a good inspector will have the time. Uh, when required to actually go out on the ground and be hands-on. Um, and, and that then gives them an opportunity to have a really good look at the staff and, and a good look at the sergeants as well. So I think all day long this shows a complete absence of uh, quality supervision. Um, and then the next tier up uh, I'm afraid you have to come back and, and ask what the priorities of senior officers have been over the last 10 to 12 years. And we all know because we've seen it, you know, we've read about it. Uh, there's been far too much uh, just gimmicky nonsense uh, and virtue signaling and on just nonsense that, that has drawn them into a bubble that is so divorced from what's going on on the front line as to be laughable. And then you've got a lot of this kind of false demand which has been created from 
um, withdrawal of funding to other frontline services such as mental health and children's services and youth services and all of that. So all in all, you've got, um, I suppose I would just describe it as a collapse in frontline morale where staff are you know, increasingly underpaid, uh, overwhelmed by demand, lacking in supervision and lacking in support. And then you add into that a very hostile uh, media narrative that makes everyone feel shit about themselves. You know, people talk about this canteen culture, you know, but it's not canteen culture, is it? Because there are no canteens anymore. Why? Because most of the police stations in the country have been closed. And the very first thing to go in most of those police stations uh, was the canteen. So there have been so many things that have happened to the police service in the last 10 to 12 years. None of them good. Most of them um, brought about by a combination of uh, stupidity and uh, ignorance on the part of the people who should have been supporting the police and doing their work. And, and then as soon as the organisation starts to fail, and it's now failing across multiple parameters, so victims of crime, as we all know, are getting a terrible service with the lowest crime detection rates ever. Um, and we're now seeing a complete collapse in morale uh, discipline issues going through the roof, corruption, and uh, all of this really, all these terrible, terrible headlines. There's like basically, there's barely a week goes by without another terrible headline about policing. So, you know, I, I know I say this an awful lot, but, um, you know, everything in life happens for a reason. And there was, there was one point in that. Um, uh, report that kind of made me roll my eyes and it was talking about allegations relating to sexual misconduct and other discriminatory behaviours are less likely than other misconduct allegations to result in a case to answer decision. Now one of the points I would make about this is that uh, anyone who's been in the police for a long time has seen some really appalling quite predatory sexual behavior by some very senior officers over the years it's been it's a very common thing in the police and there will always be this is not a lot there'll always be a few senior officers in every force who have got um let's call it an eye for the ladies and i can certainly think of several in my experience who treated their rank as a green light to give them permission to basically have sex with or try and have sex with as many female officers, generally younger, of a lower rank uh, as, they, as they could. And everyone knew it was going on. Um, and it was very frustrating to see absolutely nothing happening to those senior officers. So there's definitely, for in, to my mind, um, the danger here is that we focus too much on the lower ranks of, of constable and sergeant here. And actually, we should be looking at 
the behavior of many of the people who are very senior in the organization because believe me some of their behavior um has been pretty appalling over the years and the standards that they set um and fail to be challenged is definitely something that we should be bearing in mind in in this conversation about professionalism and uh, misconduct and on the point that I've, I've just made there i definitely think that there's an argument for treating extramarital affairs within policing uh, in the same way that the military would tend to take a very very dim view of that uh, it's very common and particularly going back to that point i made uh, before about the, the the misdeeds of of a small number of well-known senior officers in every force i think to to be for want of a better word shagging someone else's wife or husband uh, is particularly if it's a, another serving colleague is a clear in my view a clear sign of should be treated as misconduct actually because it has a dev devastating impact on uh, on that individual and that individual family um, uh, it, it can completely uh, destroy the morale of a team it brings the organization into, into disrepute um, so so yeah I definitely think uh, there's something there about saying, uh, if you're going to be so comfortable lying about something that's so um, damaging, then why should you be trusted to sign legal authorities or to give evidence in court? Um, I, uh, some will disagree with me, but I think there is definitely something there. And I'll just finish off with um, reading out a response to my LinkedIn post. I'm sure he wouldn't mind because the fact that he's put it on a public forum like LinkedIn would suggest that um, that he would be okay with this. And it's from Dr. Reg Butterfield. And he says, um, in early 2000, this is in response to my kind of back of a fag packet assessment of what's gone on with this Casey report. He says, in early 2000, I published my PhD thesis on the MPS and all of the things being discussed here were forecast by me in that paper. Corruption was there to be seen and was increasing. Even minor corruption, where figures were being distorted to meet key performance indicators. It was a detailed investigation of the impact of change on the roles of the sergeant and inspector driven by the government KPIs. It was the first of its kind and many of my findings were not allowed to be published under threat of prosecution for disclosing confidential information, etc. A few years ago, I wrote and published a short paper in the LPP, sorry, I don't know what that is, calling for the government to decide what the role of the police in London is and what it isn't. Nothing has changed as the organisation moves from one political pressure point to another. Sadly, it has now been rehearsed around the Western world. A degree in policing is no replacement for the challenging charge sergeants and inspectors at the old style training schools. They rooted out many of them before they even put on a uniform, let alone got on the streets. The media headings are all against the police officers and yet the governments, all of them, created the situation and are not innocent. And on that absolutely uh, excellent uh, series of points by Reg, I'll leave it with you. 
See you next week. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>